Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. In 1967, InterVarsity Press published a little book by Charles Hummel called The Tyranny of the Urgent. It was basically time management for Christians. It was a little booklet, about 30 pages, teaching about how to stop letting the urgent, what is right in front of us, distract us from what is important. The book was so popular and so influential, it continued to be reprinted and reprinted, and actually a revised and updated version was published in the mid-1990s. In 2002, 35 years after The Tyranny of the Urgent came out, Rick Warren, who's the pastor of Saddleback Church in California, published a book called The Purpose Driven Life. It was, and still is, wildly popular, It was on the New York Times bestseller list for 90 weeks. That's almost two years. And to date, it has sold 32 million copies in 85 languages. I will confess that I have read neither of these books. (laughs) But their titles are so familiar, and their premises are so pervasive in Christian circles and far beyond, that I kind of feel like I have read them. Urgency bad, purpose good. Though I am sure there is much more to them than that. But the titles of these two books kept circling in my mind this week as I sat with today's gospel text. Because if you boil this passage down, what it is about is about urgency and purpose. Clearly, Charles Hummel and Rick Warren were not the first people to think that these were important topics. But in Luke's text, Jesus isn't talking about urgency and purpose in generic terms or universal terms as just life-orienting principles. In fact, he doesn't even use the words urgency or purpose. But the concepts are there. And they both seem to be presented positively. Why? Because ultimately, both urgency and purpose are tied directly to the person and the work of Jesus. Interestingly, though, in opposition to how these books emerged, in the text, they come in the reverse order. First, purpose, then urgency. What this passage shows us is that for Jesus... A clear purpose created urgency. And the passage shows us that Jesus expected this to be true for his disciples as well. His disciples then and his disciples now. So let's go back and unpack this text a little bit. This text that begins in verse 51 of chapter 9 is a major turning point in Luke's gospel. I don't know who was assigning chapters and verses, but why they didn't start a new chapter with this verse, I don't understand. Because for the next 10 chapters of Luke, it's all about Jesus' journey toward Jerusalem. This verse begins, When the time drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. 
This idea of the time drawing near is a rich and frequent one in Luke, and it gives us the sense that there is an appointed time for each aspect of Jesus' ministry. So when the time drew near for Jesus to be taken up, Luke here is talking about Jesus being taken up into heaven. Remember, Luke also wrote the book of Acts, and in that we get the story of Jesus' ascension, where he is raised up into the heavens right before his disciples' eyes. So when the time drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. I think that is a beautiful and a powerful image. You set your face, you turn your face in the direction you are going unless you want to trip and fall over something. You turn your face in the direction that you are going and then to set it, that implies resolve. And this is a case where the face stands for the whole person. Jesus is determined. He has a destination And more than that, he has a purpose. Earlier in chapter 9, in the passage we looked at last week, he told his disciples, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Why was this his purpose? Why was this his destination? Not just because he was a rabble-rouser who upset the religious leaders and the empire's authorities. He was set his face toward Jerusalem, towards this suffering and death, because it was the purpose of his earthly life. He had said as much way back in chapter 4, when he preached his first sermon at Nazareth. He quoted the prophet Isaiah and said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then after he had quoted from Isaiah, he sat down and Jesus said, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus' purpose in going to Jerusalem, in setting his face toward Jerusalem, is to suffer and die and rise again so that the rescue, the salvation that was proclaimed by the prophet Isaiah may be made complete. Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. And then he does something really strange. He goes to Samaria. Now, going through Samaria to Jerusalem from Galilee, so Galilee's in the north, Jerusalem is in the south, Samaria is in between. Geographically, it makes a lot of sense to go straight through there. But you didn't do that if you were a good Jew. Because Jews and Samaritans did not get along. They didn't mix with each other. The Jews looked at the Samaritans as half-breeds. The Samaritans thought the Jews were oppressors. They did not get along. And so usually a good Jew going from Galilee to Jerusalem would go around Samaria. But instead, Jesus goes right through it. And he sends some of his disciples ahead into a village to get them a place to stay. But the Samaritans in the village refuse. 
It says they refused because Jesus had set his face toward Jerusalem, which is a little confusing. It's not clear exactly what that means, except it clearly implies that his Jewishness, his going to Jerusalem, was part of why they did not allow him to stay there. He was not one of them, and so he was not welcome. And then comes my favorite part of the story, because it is so honest, and because if I'm honest, I see a little of myself in James and John. James and John are ticked that they have been turned out of this village, even though they probably thought Jesus was crazy to have gone there in the first place. They're hot, they're tired, they're cranky, they're hangry, and this is just more proof, like they need it anymore, that the Samaritans are no good. And so they say, Lord, you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? (laughs) I love the combination of like eager beaver overachiever and spiteful violent superiority, right? And Jesus's response is that he turns and rebukes them. He turns. And you can just imagine the look he gives them. You can imagine the words he says to them. No, this is not what we are doing. This is not what this is about. And then they go on to another village. And this is where I think Jesus' purpose really comes into play in this story. His purpose comes into play, first of all, in why he went the way that he did why he went through Samaria instead of around it. Because Jesus knows that his death and his resurrection were an offering of salvation to all people. And journeying through Samaria on the way to Jerusalem was a way of walking the walk, so to speak. It would have been ironic at best if he had followed his culture's Uh, norms and prejudices and not gone and encountered with the very people he was going to save. So Jesus's purpose comes into play in the way that the direction that he went and it came into play in the fact that raining fire down from heaven was not part of Jesus's plan. It wasn't part of his plan for anybody, for Jews, for Samaritans, for anyone. Raining fire down from heaven and destroying is not Jesus' purpose. And the fact that the disciples don't get that, and in fact, the, the idea that they want to do something in his name that is so contrary to Jesus' actual purpose, that gets them a good, solid rebuke from their Lord and Master. I think the lesson here is that being Jesus' disciple means pursuing the purposes that Jesus did. It does not mean that we get to execute our own triumphalist agendas in Jesus' name. So Jesus has clearly established his purpose in the first part of this lesson. Next, we see the urgency. So in verses 57 to 62, we get three different people who profess that they will follow Jesus. 
We have no idea who these people are. But the first one comes up to Jesus and says, I will follow you anywhere you go. And you would think Jesus would say, great, come on, come join us. I'm so glad. And instead he says this sort of Zen master-like weird thing. He says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I mean, what kind of a response is that? It's a weird way to respond to somebody who has just promised to go with you anywhere. But Jesus is making a point. This life of following him, it ain't going to be easy. The life of following Jesus is just that, following wherever he goes. And wherever he goes, he is usually not welcome. He'd just seen that in Samaria, but he'd seen it at the very beginning of his ministry when he was driven out of his hometown of Nazareth for preaching the gospel. Jesus is telling this potential disciple, you have got to be all in if you are going to do this, because this is important. The next two people we read about also pledge to follow Jesus, but they've got a couple of things they want to be able to do first. Now, these are good things. These are important things, real things. One of them wants to bury their father. The other one wants to say goodbye to their family at home. I mean, these people are not exactly saying, like, Jesus, I'd really like to come follow you, but I've got a spa day planned tomorrow that I'd really like to go to first. These are real things. And Jesus' response to them seems harsh. He says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. He says, nobody who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. Are these words harsh? Yeah, I think so. I think also perhaps we can imagine Jesus speaking them with sadness as he knows how few will follow him at this great cost. Just like he was sad when the rich young ruler turned away from him. Whether these are harsh or sad words from Jesus, They are words about urgency. Jesus is saying, following me is a matter of urgency. You don't have time to do anything else. And why is it so urgent? Because his purpose is so important. Jesus' purpose is nothing less than the salvation of the world. And if that is your purpose, then nothing could be more important than that. And Jesus has made clear to his disciples that his purpose should be their purpose too. Not that they can accomplish the salvation of the world, but that they should be following him in his work of bringing about God's kingdom. His purpose should be their purpose, and so his urgency should be their urgency. His purpose, his urgency, should be ours as well. Purpose and urgency are meant to go hand in hand. But I think if we're honest, they can be a little tough. We struggle. We struggle with embracing Jesus' purpose, the redemption of all things, and the fulfillment of God's kingdom. 
Instead, like James and John, we want to harness Jesus' power for our purposes and urgency. Well, when day after day unfolds, when Sunday comes every week, it can get easy to lose sight of the urgency of the things of God. Specifically, what makes it difficult to stay connected to the purpose and the urgency of Jesus? I think it's hard to stay connected to the purpose of Jesus, to the purposes of God, because there is so much that does not look like the kingdom of God. There is so much pain and suffering in our own lives, in the lives of people we love, in the world, in our communities. There is so much that I think it's only human to wonder sometimes if God is really committed to his purpose of redeeming the world. And even if we do believe that on a macro scale, a huge universal scale, it can be hard to see where we fit into that much larger purpose. N.T. Wright writes in Surprised by Scripture, he says, like craftsmen working on a great cathedral, We have each been given instructions about the particular stone we are to spend our lives carving without knowing or being able to guess where it will take its place within the grand design. That is hard. That is hard to do. It takes trust. Wright continues, he says, we are assured by the words of Paul and by Jesus' resurrection of the launch of that new creation, that the work we do is not in vain. That is true. But when we cannot see where our stone fits in the big picture, it can be hard to trust God's larger purpose. How about urgency? What makes urgency, Jesus' urgency, hard for us to grasp and to follow and to get on board with? Well, if you haven't noticed, Jesus has been gone for 2,000 years. The first Christians thought he was going to return in their lifetimes. And as the centuries and the millennia go on, We may still believe in his second coming. We may believe that he is going to come and to renew and restore all things. But it can seem to us as likely as not that it's going to be another 2,000 years from now. It can be hard to keep a hold of the sense of urgency when the thing we are waiting for seems so far off. I think another thing that makes it hard for us to grasp and appreciate the urgency of Jesus' message, of his purpose, is what I think we can call the the postmodernism of our culture. That's very roughly explained. The belief that everybody has their own story, and everybody's story is as valid as anybody else's. And there's actually a lot of good that has come out of this move in our culture. I think it has helped us to listen to the voices of people who have been silenced for much of history. Women, non-white folks, the poor. But the downside of this is that I think it can dull us to the power and the uniqueness of the gospel. 
that the story of Jesus is a story for everyone. That the message of salvation from sin and death through the love and mercy of God, the message of life lived in communion with God, that message is for everybody. But when we live in a world of countless stories, all of which are professed to be equally valid, we lose the urgency that should propel us to want to share this good news of Jesus. Because this is the best story there is, and people should find their place in it. Amen. It is hard to keep hold of God's purposes and to keep hold of the sense of urgency of the gospel. So what do we do? Well, unlike most self-help books and Christian devotionals, even I'm not going to give you a formula because I can't. There's no five or 12 or 200 steps that will guarantee that you will end up in line with Jesus's purpose and holding fast to his sense of urgency. Because the best answer I have about how we faithfully follow Jesus's purpose and hold on to his urgency is that we have the heart and mind of Jesus himself. How do we do that? How do we get the heart and mind of Jesus? It's a little bit of a trick question because the answer is we can't. We can't create that in ourselves. God must create it in us. But we can create space and opportunity for him to do that just as we can choose not to create that space or opportunity. So if we want to create that space, that opportunity for God to do that transforming work in us, to give us the mind and heart of Christ, what are some things we can do? First of all, I think we have to spend time with Jesus. That can be in daily devotions, study of scripture, intercessory prayer. It can also be just in the things of life saying, Jesus, I'm going to go for this walk with you. And you're just aware that Jesus is with you as you go for a walk or go to the grocery store or cook dinner or whatever it is that you are doing. It's what Brother Lawrence called practicing the presence of God. And if we're going to spend time with Jesus... It means we've got to be willing to be really honest with him. I had a nice little conversation with Jesus as I was working on this sermon this week. I told him, Jesus, I don't like what you say here, and I don't want to have to preach on it. (laughs) And he said, I know, but I'll help. If we are going to get the mind and heart of Christ, we have to be honest with Christ about who we are, where we are, and let him into all, all of it. And we can learn Jesus' ways by studying and meditating on the scripture. Not to tick the boxes to say, yes, I've had my quiet time, I've studied, I've read my Bible through in a year, aren't I good and holy God? But to allow the words and the concepts and the truth of scripture to permeate our minds and our hearts. And to learn Jesus' ways. And finally, we can engage in practices that create space and opportunity for God to work in our hearts. 
If we are busy from the moment we open our eyes till the moment we fall asleep, if our phones are constantly in front of us, if everything is always going on, it is hard for space to open up. And so there are practices that we can engage in of silence, solitude, centering prayer, things that just say, God, I am showing up in your presence, and I just want to be with you. These are things that create the space, that create the opportunity for God to shape our hearts and our minds so that the, mind, the heart and mind of Christ is in us. And because of that, we will pursue Jesus' purpose and we will hold on to the urgency that he shared. Because as his disciples, as his followers, that is our calling. To pursue Jesus' purpose with the urgency with which he pursued it. Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. He set his face toward suffering and death. He set his face toward the cross. Because God's face is always, always, always set toward us in love. Amen. Yes.